all CEOs, me included, we don't actually know what we're doing. They're all sharks, so all you got to do, though, is no shark bait. I don't think we've ever talked about this before. <laughs> we can capture all of the wallet share. First place you start is with the product. That's just the first nut. This is the Capital Stack. Hey, everybody, this is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack podcast, where I talk to founders, operators, and investors about all things value creation and startups. Today, I'm talking to Jason Gunn, also known as McLovin. That's right. McLovin was a co-founder of a company called Attribytes, in which I funded a couple of years ago, um, and he has... We have since exited such company and we've made some money together and that's right. Uh, he's moved on. He's moved on, but he has stayed to his roots of working within products of verticalized data, which is what we're going to be talking to about today a lot, uh, specifically food service data. So Jason, tell me a little bit about your background and where you work today. Today. All right. So if I go back to the beginning, I often tell people I started out my career as a hydro ceramic engineer. Uh, layman's term would be a dishwasher. Mm -hmm. And I found myself uh, really gravitating towards making money working in the restaurant and traditional college just didn't land for me. I went to a upstate New York State College for a hot minute um, and just decided that, you know, I, I belonged in the kitchen. So I ended up at culinary school, uh, Culinary Institute of America. You do belong in the kitchen. With, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, I, You're a back of the house guy. I am a back of the house guy for <laughs> sure. Yeah. In high school, my uh, high school uh, comms teacher said I had a great face for radio. So mm -hmm. this is appropriate, except you're recording me on YouTube too. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, as long story longer, I ended up going to culinary school at the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York. Shout CIA. Out to my brethren there. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. That's the culinary school, right? Yeah, with a little bias, sure. Um, there's a lot of great schools out there. I've run into a lot of great uh, you know, chefs that have come from all different makes and models of the world. And I always said, like, you do not need to be educated at an institution to be granted the title of chef, you know, I'd be the mm -hmm. last person to ever call myself chef. Um, because arguably I've spent more time in my career peddling data than I did slinging anything in a kitchen, you know? So, uh, yeah, as many chefs do after a, a time, I landed, uh, at us foods as a uh, sales rep out here in Phoenix, Arizona. I was in the Scottsdale area, kind of this hood. So I peddled groceries to restaurants, hotels, all that. And that got me introduced to a gentleman that uh, you and I both know and love named Mike Kovarik, who, you know, really is the vision behind Attribytes and what that came to be. I get a lot of accolades and uh, associated credit, which I'll take. But, you know, that that was his baby, his vision. And, you know, I was very fortunate to go for a very fun ride through that whole thing. And that led me to you, my friend. Mm hmm. And we did exit. So that was great. We ended up getting acquired by a competitor. It was a, it was a great exit for, I think, everybody involved. And I spent some time there. And candidly, they treated me very well. But I think I accidentally became a startup guy. Mm -hmm. You know, and you and I had that conversation early on because I remember going to lunch. I think it was at Collins or somewhere. And you said, are you a food service guy or are you a, a, a startup guy? And I was like, oh, I'm a food service guy. Mm -hmm. you know, I was just committed to my roots. And then, 
you know, I got acquired and back into big corporate because I had did about 10 years at U.S. Foods um, with Mike, actually. So um, that was kind of the genesis of Atrobytes. But, you know, when I got back into big corporate, I just fell in love with the lifestyle and the creativity and the flexibility and, you know, tackling a problem, you know, that I've experienced for years as I was in the industry, if not in the kitchen, but adjacent to the operator space. I, I always had that in mind. And um, yeah, you introduced me to Galley Solutions, which uh, had just recently gotten a fundraise last year, Series A. And now I'm heading up marketing with those guys. So I'm having a lot of fun doing that, kind of taking learnings from my time in, uh, in our own startup environment and some best practices and, you know, do it again. So how does technology play in food service historically and how does data been played in food service from a, from a high level perspective? How did you productize data with Atrobytes and how are you productizing data with Galley? Yeah, it's a fun space to be in. And if you're from, let's say, the retail segment, you know, you might look at food service as a little bit behind, which traditionally it is. Um, you know, the food service space has generally been in the business of selling big brown boxes to restaurants, hotels, right? Food service institutions could be you know, even the um, prison or whatever, contract food service, you see it everywhere. Anywhere you see food away from home, that is food service. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there wasn't much religion in our time uh, leading into technology on curating data, right? Because you always had a person behind a laptop or, you know, if you go back further, a tells on, and they were taken in order. They were intimate with the products. They were intimate with the customer. It was very much what, you know, we would call belly to belly sales. And what was interesting to me, you know, as I was a bit of a youngster, you know, at US Foods, I think I was 20 when I got hired as a sales rep, my sales manager took a big gamble on me. Mm -hmm. um, but they had this early version of .com, usfood.com, and it was, they are largely for national accounts. So they had kind of a curated shopping list that they would buy from. And the idea of the dot-com structure wasn't to promote what you and I know as an Amazon-like experience. It was to replace me as an order taker who was expensive. It was much easier to make the customer take yeah, the Yeah, give them an e-commerce experience, right? But the experience wasn't there. You know, this is like 06, 07, when even Amazon was just starting to expand outside of books. And... I was getting my customers who were mom and pop shops, right? They weren't local or they weren't uh, national accounts. They were more like the local heroes. And I'm like, hey, here's this dot com thing. Instead of me chasing you around the kitchen, why don't you place your order? Just get it in by 530. I got you covered. And that's when the complaining started, right? There's no pictures. There's no marketing information. Mm -hmm. These product descriptions are terrible, right? Like uh, manufacturers traditionally didn't have to have good religion on their data because they were selling to retailers, right? Walmart. Kroger, wherever you walk in that store, you pick it up off the shelf. You can see it you might even be able to taste it, but you didn't need to know what the product description was because you never bought it on an invoice or a line item, which is hugely important in the food service world. Mm -hmm. And as we went to an e-com experience with a much broader audience of people, it became apparent uh, that we needed better information for them to have a shopping experience. So that's kind of where I got to uh, know Mike a little bit through a series of coincidences. And I knew that he ran the data team. You know, he has his own uh, kind of origin story that you should definitely have him come on and, and talk about. Um, but he was the guy that set up all the, the product codes and all the, the managed all the data that I as a sales rep or a customer would see. 
and it was terrible. And I would let them know, send a text, you know, Hey, you're terrible at your job. I can't find this thing. Like, where's Mm -hmm. the, where's the information, you know, where's the data. And he said, okay, funny guy, why don't you come help me get more data from the manufacturers? And I think the first stretch, uh, in my career as a corporate citizen at us foods was just understanding that data was a thing, you know, and I got involved with these global organizations that are promoting standards. So for example, GS one is a a global nonprofit organization that you probably never heard of, but they are the governing body behind what you and I know and love as a, as a barcode. Mm -hmm. So when you scan that barcode at the grocery store, that's a globally unique identifier, globally unique number, and there's standardized attributes around it. So Mike and I were on quite a journey early on, uh, and we were fortunate to have some industry um, veterans and you know sponsors that would help us promote this throughout the industry across competitors. So we got to know the Cisco's and the the Gordons and all of the competitors because it was one of those situations where if we can get the manufacturing community to rally around standardizing their data and syndicating it through some sort of standard format, like. Yeah, it's a little bit of a rising tide raises all ships, but it's it's table stakes now, fellas. You know, we have to have good information and you can't, you know, hold on to it, harboring, you know, something unique, thinking that you're special. It actually works the other way. Right. When you when you become so unique, you almost become unfindable when you think of it in terms of like searching for something. Right. You would never go to page two on Google. You just don't. So why does why did the barcodes solve this solve the problem? We needed more content than what was readily available through that network, like standardized data demands standardized requirements and um, some governance around it. So when you look at a big industry like food service, which, you know, is, I think, second to the government in terms of a total addressable market. I mean, it's just it's so big. Getting alignment across those players is really tough. And there are things, certain things that are going to be unique to each person that needs to consume the data. So. All of that to be said, it got us part way to where we needed to be. But by the time e-commerce, you know, had evolved yet again, um, it wasn't just, hey, I need a couple of pictures of what it looks like inside the box. And I need to understand like the nutrient panel and is it gluten free? It's I need to know if this has pea protein. Um, was it ever treated with antibiotics? I want a 360 view, right? Like Amazon really spoiled us. Mm-hmm. And now in 2023, you know, if you're in the back of the house of the kitchen, largely you expect the same experience from your food service distributor that you would from an Amazon like experience. So, you know, that's that's one way that we were kind of thinking about it because uh, to answer your question about like how you productize that product content, the curating of it and the moving of it is one piece of it. Then there's the ability to share that data with the, between the distributors and the manufacturers and the operators. So you've got this very similar ecosystem uh, except the idea of sharing transactional sales data with a manufacturer from a distributor is a little foreign in the food service space, right? And this is very holy data. I do not share pricing information with anybody. Um, but as we continue to evolve as an industry, there is this huge need for data. And in retail, it wasn't strange at all. You know, you might, Hormel might spend seven, eight figures with Walmart to get uh, transactional sales data. How many cases of bacon or packages of bacon moved at this Walmart on this corner at this point in time. So there was a, a desire for it, a market for it. And, you know, frankly, U.S. Foods had brought that retail model of sharing data to the food service world. And Mike and I were there 
uh, kind of at the core of it. And, you know, we saw some great opportunities and we saw some great failures Mm -hmm. in that as well. So we thought, boy, distributors need more content, right? From the manufacturers and the manufacturers want transactional sales data from the distributors. So why don't we bring these two ideas together and we'll, you know, uh, Rather than what we had done when we were at U.S. Foods, which was beat them over the head with a with a stick, we we're like, hey, we might be able to help you get your hands on this transactional sales information and help you better go to market in partnership with your distributor if you give us better product content to service the e-commerce needs up front. Mm-hmm. And that seemed to register with a lot of people. And once we brought those two worlds together, we had a package. We had something that we could sell. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm telling you this story, but this was Mike's vision. Mm-hmm. holistically yeah awesome and then we were able to monetize not one not two but three different products mm-hmm. you know within within that that offering and that platform mm-hmm. and it was sold and then how does data get played in galley so galley takes a very similar uh problem away uh, in a different segment of the food service space. So I just described a lot to you around product data, uh, master data management, and then transactional sales information. Those things are all very important to the operator, but in a different way. Um, so Galley starts with recipe data at the at the foundation of it. So what a lot of operators, chefs like myself, right, out of school or spent an entire life in the industry, don't realize how many people touch the data that is so critical to the profitability and the efficiency of our company. Um, spreadsheets are prolific, right? Every kitchen, if you go into a, a kitchen, has the infamous red binder, mm-hmm. you know, with the recipes in it, you know, and um, that's data, right? Ingredients, pack size information, the vendor product description, the pricing, the pricing at that point in time, allergen detail, all this stuff that as a consumer, if I'm going to go eat food away from home, that is data that I need to see. And often it, it surfaces on a menu or it surfaces on a, on a menu board. Um, but boy, does it become incredibly uh, deadly if it's wrong or inaccurate or mm-hmm. out, of, out of date. So, so you're digitizing the red binder? More or less in a, in a very oversimplified way. Yes, we are taking the red binder into the digital world and then we're wrapping other elements around it, you know? So it's not just, okay, how do I manage my recipe data? How do I manage my procure to pay process? How do I manage my um, moving around of inventory internally? You know, because if I'm a college or university, like I was just at a conference uh, that services that part of the operator space, they've got these huge campuses that feed thousands and thousands of people. I mean, they're pumping out millions of meals a month in some cases. So they've got a commissary that receives food. They've got a dining establishment over here that has like a buffet kind of um, setup. They've got on-demand a la carte options. They've maybe they've got a late night slash retail outfit. Um it's it's a much more complex ecosystem than anybody really thinks about. And that food data, that sales and pricing information, that inventory data, uh, in a lot of cases is still on spreadsheets and share drives and stuff like that. And Galley really solves that and makes it easy for the operators with what we call the culinary, uh, a culinary operating system. That's amazing. That's amazing. And then you can actually start forecasting from a bottoms up perspective. Talk about demand planning, right? right. And, you know, it's not wildly different than the problem that Mike and I were trying to solve because the manufacturers and the distributors always have that problem, but who are they servicing, right? The guys that actually buy and do something with the product. So what was uh, kind of fun with Galley that I fell in love with is the fact that they have 
the tip of the spear, right? If we know exactly what the operator's buying, then I can get a lot better at what I need to buy as a distributor. And I can be a lot better as a manufacturer on how I ramp my, my production and my logistics. So there's, we haven't brought all those pieces together as an industry yet, but there is, you know, a way that we can, we can bring those worlds together, I think. Awesome. So where's the future of food service data besides that little, little vision? <clears throat> For me, it's ubiquity. You know, if we, if we can't get to some sort of ubiquity and confidence in the data that's available and make it easy, you know, my philosophy is the data, data should be easy to create, data should be easy to manage, and data should be easy to share. Um, it's not, I, I think there's a value to having more data than others, you know, get the Zuckerbergs and the Amazons and the Googles, right? You know, there's obviously a lot to be had from that. Um, but at this point, we're talking about getting products moved around, you know? I mean, if, if you go online and you search for a product and it doesn't have a picture, A, it probably just won't show up, right? Mm -hmm. It's on page 10 of the search results. Um, and, and you don't trust it, you know? So I'm really hoping our industry starts to rally around that and say, hey, guys, you know, yeah, commoditizing the data is, is um, you know, going to create some fuzzy barriers, you know, in terms of like what's unique to us. But I think the idea that like I have all the data, so I am better, it, it doesn't play in food service the way it might. How much does that like fall into just the standardization of the data? And that's one of the barriers. You know, because be. I mean, there's huge just industries built around data normalization and. You want, to, lakes. you want to have a fun exercise? I used to do this. At Let's US do with. it. Okay. Um, French fries. You're familiar with French fries. I love French fries. Who doesn't love French fries? I had truffle fries last night. Okay. Gave me chronic diarrhea this morning. That's amazing. Yeah. Okay. So we'll leave the uh, flavors uh, over here. That's a different <laughs> part of the category um, and outcomes. So what if we talked about a uh, French fry that is a waffle cut? Are you familiar uh, with a waffle dude, cut French waffle, fry? Dude, every, every French fry should be a waffle cut French fry. Unless it's a lattice cut. Are you familiar with the lattice cut no. French fry? If you looked at a lattice work, like a fence mm -hmm. and you looked at a waffle cut french fry there's no difference yeah <laughs> well what about the double the double fried or what is it like the oh the, those are coated yeah the and coated french fry coated yeah the french fry like the, the seasoned fries yeah like, that um, are that are waffle exactly <laughs> those are those are really good yeah those are your favorite but they're actually the same thing so imagine this you're trying to get like the best price on waffle cut fries mm -hmm. right but you got to make sure you get the lattice cut fries and you got to make sure you get these fries and you get, like, what do they call it? Like the tater tot. That is, those are good too. That is trademarked. Mm -hmm. That does not belong to the world, you know? So when you're in food service, if you want to find tater tots, you're only going to get a handful of SKUs from one particular manufacturer. Otherwise you have to search for a thing called a potato barrel or perhaps <laughs> a potato puff. Right? How goofy is that? So is, if I'm a sales rep or if I'm a chef, I got to know like this weird tribal language, you know, just to make sure I'm seeing everything available to me. Can you like, imagine saying, I'd like to have a side of potato barrels, please. Said no one ever, <laughs> yeah. you know, but it's kind of that brand ubiquity, right? And it's like, okay, you know, <clears throat> Kleenex. Is it a tissue or a Kleenex? Or if you're in certain parts of the country, it's, you know, I'll have a Coke. Oh, okay. What kind? Dr. Pepper. Got it. Mm -hmm. Like those kinds of regional colloquialisms. Wow. I got that out. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, are incredibly challenging for a guy like me who's sitting in the corporate office going, okay, I'm going to set up this thing and I do want it to be standard, but, um, 
people don't want to call it what it is because they think that makes them unique. And I'm like, no, no. If you call your fork charcoal, right? A a plastic disposable fork, you call it charcoal and everyone else calls it black. When Mm -hmm. they search for black forks and knives, you just don't show up. Mm -hmm. So what made you unique actually just made you irrelevant. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I don't know that the food service industry has wrapped their brain around that completely some are better than others so i will you know allow that for some of my my close friends but you know i think largely so it's a culture thing really it can be mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah how much of it is a tech stack thing uh that plays a role you know yeah. because there's so many different types of technology out there and you know i need a a master data system to to manage all of like the kind of static information. I need a transactional backend system for procuring and receiving products. I need a front facing e-commerce system. And, you know, boy, wouldn't it be nice if they all talk to each other, mm-hmm. um, which gets you into like, you know, that kind of nebulous ERP space. Yeah. What is ERP in food service? Enterprise resource planning systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it is, it, it's that, you know, you see the SAPs and the oracles and sages, you know, they're, they're, industry agnostic tools, you know, that have been developed over time. Um, and I think ERP was, you know, kind of coined by Gardner, you know, in the, in the late aughts, you know, it was like, Hey, this assembly of systems that operationalize my business to get it from, you know, zero to being something, you know, production and planning to, you know, merchandising and all of that stuff. Like, I think that all falls into this ERP space. And mm-hmm. then I think some years later as technology and, and, you know, the, the cloud-based internet, right. Came to be the idea of a cloud-based infrastructure behind that coined the phrase modern ERP. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the industry verticals get lost in that a little bit because now you have something that maybe, you know, Oracle or SAP built in tandem with some consultants for the healthcare industry is like, oh, okay, well we can commoditize that. And Hey, food service guys, do you want that? And we're like, you know, I get a out of the box ERP or PIM system. I remember when we were uh, evaluating systems, we were kind of looking at this is at US Foods. We we're looking at like, okay, what are all the attributes available? Right? It was an ERP structure or a, a MDM structure that was built for like detail. So the they wanted to know if we wanted attributes like, does this hang on a coat hook? Is this you mm-hmm. know hang on a wall or whatever? And I'm like, why would I need to? I don't sell hammers, you know. Right. There's no specialization, you know. There might be consultants or people that can help guide you in that direction. But when you get into the traditional, but there's out of the box ERP. It's huge. I think so. Yeah. I mean, we're talking. I mean, I just feel like the verticalized data play is is not. No one's. No one is the best data aggregator and. Um, naturalizer and analytics and reporting and food service. Who is that? No one knows, right? Who's the best, you know, data naturalization aggregator and reporter in gaming? No one knows. Right. You know, and Mm -hmm. the reason why is, is because there's these really great horizontal solutions and there's a whole business wrapped around managed services that kind of tailor to fit. But the problem is, is that they don't really work great. Yeah. I mean, it's not like I know them all intimately, but what I've bumped into is, you know, it just ends up being a challenge. Like nobody, you know, says, oh, my company's going through an SAP implementation and, you know, it's isn't, great. isn't like kind of crying a little <laughs> bit, you know, or, you know, actively seeking yeah. retirement. Yeah, you know, it's kind of like the same thing as like saying you're going through a divorce. Yeah. I mean, I watched a major food service distributor go through that where they're like, cool, we're going to do SAP. And they implemented it, you know, a handful of their, you know, hundred op, uh, operating, you know, companies throughout the thing. And <clears throat> they were like, wow, this, like we, we can't hit critical mass here. And they backed out of it and they set like a lot of money on fire. Mm-hmm. 
What do you think about the new uh, Phase Five of Marvel? Phase Five in Marvel? Mm-hmm. Can I can I share something with you that I'm not proud of? Yeah. I think I I think I have like superhero movie fatigue. Do you? Yeah. Wow. Like the big movies, right? Like I just I I am it's too much in love with the the universes and and the connected universes and stuff. We've spent a fair bit of time talking about it. Um, so now my nerdery is going to hang out a little bit. But uh, yeah, I just I don't know. I don't know where they're going anymore. I mean, do you think it's because there's just been too much superhero content? coming out or do you think it's because like it's a personal issue with you i'm gonna take it inside and call it a personal <laughs> issue because <laughs> i love it right like people ask me you know what do you think of the new batman or whatever and i'm like great it's all great man like more more batman's better than you know less batman yeah, the fact that yeah. you and i are having this conversation in public forum right now is yeah. amazing because like when i was in high school this would have gotten me shoved in a locker no no exactly um so i love that they uh made it popular and it's accessible and it's not weird now. Right. And it's, um, and I think now we're kind of in the world where people aren't like totally in love with their Batman. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and who's who's your Batman? Michael Keaton, bro. That's why I love you, man. I'm Batman. I'm Batman. (laughs) (laughs) What are you? (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) I'd actually go for Kevin Conroy, um, was, was a, a very big part of my, my formative years, which for the uninitiated is the gentleman behind the voice of Batman in the animated series for years who unfortunately, yeah. uh, tip your hat, uh, passed away last yeah. year. Remember the phantasm? Anyway, it's arguably the best Batman movie ever. I saw it in theaters. It's great. Came yeah. out on Christmas, 1993. Yeah. I saw it in theaters. It was incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, Luke Skywalker, what's it? Mike Hamill was the Mark Joker. Hamill, yeah. yeah. He was fantastic. A lot of people didn't know that. Yeah. He has a brilliant story behind that too. I mean, he is unbelievable voice of the Joker. And no one would have thought that Luke Skywalker was the voice of the most like chaotic maniac, you know, mm-hmm. villain, mm-hmm. noble supervillain time. Yeah. Um, so more content, the better. Yeah, but I think that gives everybody their ability to have their own entry point into the world. Right, there's an on-ramp. Yeah, like some people will shake their fist at the prequels, the Star Wars prequels, or some people shake their fist at, you know, Robert Pattinson and Batman or whatever. Like, that's somebody's Batman, man. That's somebody's Star Wars. <laughs> right. That brought them into the universe, you know. It might not be my speed, but I'm okay with that. Man. Yeah, like, and, anybody... and you're allowing different creative outlets, right? Yes. I, I love the fact that, okay, cool, man. Like, we have a totally different take on it. It's dark. It's it's cringy, you know. There's Nirvana mm. playing in the background. Very emo. Yeah. <laughs> Like, emo Batman. He's such a dick to Alfred the whole movie. I know. I'm like, what are you <laughs> Why doing? Why are you so man? mean like, to him? This guy changed your diapers and he's just being this angsty. You know, I know. He's just so. in this, in this makeup. So he's, I, he's just brooding. Yeah, exactly. He's just, just like a little bitch in this bat cave. Yeah. You know, with his like leaky makeup. Yeah. His face. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and why is everything red? And like, like, why is your all technology red? Right. <laughs> like, isn't it hard to see things in red? Well, I mean, again, at risk of my nerdery hanging out, the original design of Batman, when it was drawn um, by Bob Kane, had, um, he was black with red shorts, almost like Superman, like red tights. Oh, I kind of like that. Like tighty whities on. Yeah. That crazy. <laughs> so been, so that, red. That, that would have gotten people really upset. I know. Um, but red was actually a primary color mm-hmm. in the Batverse before we all got introduced to uh, the Keaton, you know, the gold emblem, which right. is, you know, more my. Which is great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
What about, um, what about like, I, I, what do you think about, I mean, where do you think Marvel's going? Oh, uh, wherever Kevin Feige tells him to. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's all good. That's what I'm saying. I'm all good, but like there's so di- much content. Yeah, I can't. I, I think Disney just did a, an incredible job in buying that franchise. You know, because now there's just unlimited coffers to just keep pumping stuff out. Can the last Wakanda movie was fucking garbage. Yeah, for sure. But the thing about what happened with the Disney purchase, boy, you're like, this is going to be the podcast that like all your listeners go, what the fuck? <laughs> what did you do? <laughs> you it was fight? so good. It you were doing so good. good. And then you asked him about the, the <laughs> comic book thing. What happened? Um, no, a lot of people don't know that like in the 90s, Marvel was in a lot of trouble. So Stan Lee siphoned off the rights to a bunch of characters. Some went to Sony, some went to Fox, yeah. some went to here. Like that's why you'll never see like a standalone Hulk movie because Universal owns that still. And like they're not giving it up or all this anxiety about like, is there going to be a third Spider-Man because it's owned by Sony, you know? Um, Even though they like, they got some like license rights and some they the figured movies. it out. Yeah. yeah. Um, but when Marvel... And when Disney bought Fox, that's when you got to have Deadpool in the same room with, you know, Thor. Right. But prior to that, you couldn't because of the legalities behind it. Mm -hmm. And there's your uh, Hollywood reporter version of comic book nerdery. Yeah. So um, if I was any comic book character, who would I be? The question. The question. Okay. I'll, I'll, like, let, I'll let the folks at home do research. <laughs> did you, did you, can, you, can you be a little like more mainstream than that? I know the Joker's your jammy jam. Well, I, I don't like, know yeah. that I'd put you. No, that's a, fine. That's fine. I mean, he's a villain. Yeah, but isn't, isn't everybody's, isn't, uh, isn't, isn't a villain just somebody else's hero? So I've got, that's true. I've gotten, um, I have a portfolio co-founder that worked at Marvel. And I, oh, wow. you know, and I said, you know, I asked him the same question and he said, dude, without a doubt, you're fucking Nick Fury. Oh, you I assem- like that. You assembled the Avengers. Avengers assemble. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I could take that. Yeah. I can take that. Yeah. I'd have to think about it. There's a, there's quite a, a rogues gallery that we could mm-hmm. uh, assign you to. <laughs> exactly. I'm going to have to come up with your own superhero. Yeah, I think so. Update your profile mm-hmm. your podcast. Everybody, thank you for turning into the Capital Stack, where we talk to founders, operators, and investors about value creation. Jason, thank you so much for coming in today. A couple can questions. What is your favorite book? My favorite book? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's The Bear and the Dragon by Tom Clancy. Okay, nice. What is your favorite piece of business advice you've ever received? My favorite piece of business advice I ever received. Best know, piece of know, know your superpower. I like it. I like it. We drop an episode every Tuesday on all your favorite platforms, Spotify, Apple, and YouTube. If you like it, please subscribe, tell a friend, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.